Today I welcome Russell Shaw, Head of School at Georgetown Day School in the USA. In this episode, I discuss why education upholds democracy, the importance of student agency, creating an environment of joy, and why schools of the future will be centered around people, not technology. I was always fascinated to read your bio on your website that you're a gifted storyteller, which I love. I'm all about the stories. But you've also expressed an interest in this link between democracy and education. How do education and democracy interlink? So I'll answer that question a couple of ways. First, it's useful to know the history of Georgetown Day School, where I've spent the past 13 years. The school was founded in 1945 in Washington, D.C. for a very specific purpose. At that time, there was not an integrated school religiously or racially in the District of Columbia, public or private. And the founders saw educating kids from different life experiences, different backgrounds, different racial backgrounds as as really a moral imperative, right? We're going to bring kids together and teach them what does it mean to be in community with people whose life experiences are different than your own. And it was a very, it was a radical act in 1945 to do that at a time when they tried to integrate the National Theater and ended up closing it and turning it into a movie theater for a decade because there was so much pushback around that notion. And it was also the schools founded coming out of the Second World War and the idea that we need to put, and again, what happens when people really are not taught the skills of empathy and curiosity about people who are different than them. So for me, there are ways in which the founding of the school was a, an act of social justice and an act of really preparing kids for democracy. I think about what our kids, the world they are heading into in, in 2023, I think about the ability to simply discern truth, you know, that if you go on social media, you can, depending on where you look, hear and read dramatically different versions of truth or reality. And that we need to give our kids the tools to be able to ask hard questions, to be able to know what's true. I think that, you know, the advent of things like ChatGPT, which can create at light speed new narratives and can make up studies, research studies to support ideas. Kids are going to need to be able to know what's true, to form arguments, to listen to different perspectives in order to be able to participate effectively as citizens in a democracy. And this is an idea that, you know, John Dewey had in the early 1900s, right? And Thomas Jefferson before him, that for a functioning democracy, you need an informed citizenry. You need people who are going to be able to feel a sense of agency, feel a sense of curiosity about people who are different than them, and then invest in building a world that is better than the one they're inheriting. To me, that's sort of one of the fundamental purposes of education, and it's what we spend a lot of energy on at Georgetown Day School. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned discerning truth, and it is extraordinarily difficult for this generation and even the last 10 years as technology has grown exponentially, our access to information has become unparalleled really. And then you're getting the tools like ChatGPT that you've mentioned, they're adding a very new dimension. The problem we've got is that, do we have enough time to teach kids the skills? Are we teaching the teachers how to teach the kids to discern the truth? Also, what are we doing to support parents? Because I find this whole kind of petri dish of chaos with where we have access to everything 24-7, busier than ever, but I don't think we use the time 
as effectively as we should do. And we probably convince, we see the truth. It looks convincing, doesn't it? When people put it together. How do you bring that into a school environment that's driven by curriculum and and other kind of modules that you have to get through? And there's another part of it. So actually, I need you to find some time to learn how to live with the reality of discerning the truth. So every January, and this may be a very Washington thing, but I give two talks, one to our faculty and one to our parents called The State of the School. And it is a talk which, of course, talks about, you know, the financial health of the school and any policy changes. But I always try to include a component that is around learning and around intellectual engagement and around introducing new ideas. Um, And I'm sharing this because last month I gave the state of the school, both for our faculty and parents, and I started it in the following way. I said it was coming off of our winter holiday, our winter break, and my older kids were home from college. And I said, you know, I've had a wonderful time with my kids home from college. I got very busy and I want to begin with a confession. I had no time to prepare a state of the school talk, but that's okay because the internet can prepare one for me. And so I opened up ChatGPT on the big screen and I said, you know, write a state of the school talk for the head of Georgetown Day School to give to either the faculty or the parents. And I read it in real time. And not surprisingly, it did a remarkably good job of speaking to some of the issues that I might have been talking about at the state of the school. And then, of course, pivoted and said, I actually did prepare a talk. I want to talk about artificial intelligence. And I did that as a way of saying to our faculty and to our parents, this is a new reality and we either can run from the reality or we can try to ban the reality or we can engage with this reality, which is whether we want it to or not, will transform the world in which our kids grow up. And so let's take time. And I said to our teachers, you need to play with the technology. You need to get comfortable with it. And you need to engage in conversations with each other as colleagues and with your students around it. This deserves time. And if it means putting aside something that you normally do, it is vital because what are the ethics of using this technology, right? How do we think in new ways about the skill of learning how to write? What are we going to gain and what are we going to give up? I think oftentimes we can be in our lives on autopilot and our ability to sort of reflect in new ways is squeezed by distraction, by what's on our phone, by social media. And so how do we slow down and ask really big questions and give those space? And similarly with our parents, I said, if you haven't played with this technology, I said, your kids have seen it. They may have already handed in assignments using it. And you need to slow down and you need to learn about it and you need to talk to your kids about it. We should never run away from anything that's current and and relevant and, and in the world because surely that's the skills we're teaching our kids to have is they need to have something that's fit for purpose and relevant for the world that they're in now, but also the world they're going to go into. Corporations aren't banning it. We're not banning it because I go home. It's a time for education to pivot and to shift. There are new ways in which to use it. You flip the way that you teach. Great schools do that. Schools that understand that you know, we are teaching these kids and uh, well, these young men and women to go out into the world with the right skills and the balance of education is that we need to embrace it. We can't ban it. But I'm really interested in this idea about democracy because I'm obviously in, in the US, democracy is a very polarized piece. How does education uphold democracy and how do you teach democracy in schools? So I think you teach it, it upholds democracy because ideally, 
part of what you're doing with education is you are exposing kids to perspectives, ideas, stories, narrative truths that are different from um, their own, right? A danger in our contemporary world, and I think that this has been amplified by social media, is that we can curate information sources so that we are only hearing views that align with the way that we already think, and maybe even more extreme versions of how we already think. And I think the responsibility of education is to engage young people with ideas, perspectives, narratives that are different from those that they encounter on a daily basis. We can do that through literature. We can do that through, you know, one of the silver linings of COVID is here you and I are in conversation and we can see each other on Zoom. Four years ago, this would have felt really novel. You know, wow, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at Simon and I'm talking to him and we're in different places. And now we do this multiple times a day, every day, and it can be part of education. So if we have a student in Washington, D.C., who wants to understand how a young person in Iowa may think about, you know, passing a national budget or issues of guns and gun ownership differently than they do in Washington, D.C., they can be in conversation with kids in other places and they can hear those stories. And I think that's not just a a nice sort of frill. I think that's actually essential to a healthy and vibrant democracy is engaging with ideas and perspectives that are different from your own and thinking about how does that move or nuance or sharpen the way that I would engage any kind of issue or political problem. It's easy to, and again, I think our social media is set up to sort of echo the perspectives that we already hold. I think education is about not simply sharpening our own ways of thinking, but challenging those ways of thinking with new perspectives. This sort of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, you know, that is a big agenda item that's kind of come to the front of all conversations, not just in America, but obviously led through what's been happening in America. Is that just a kind of a sub area of democracy that we're just shining a brighter light on because it's, it's really important to, for us to elevate that in terms of our democratic thinking and this belief that everyone is equal and we should all have fair views and representation? Should it be bundled up in democracy as a whole or should it be brought along as its own kind of important sub area? If we look at the history of our country, there were huge stretches of this country's history where people didn't have access to the democracy because of their race. They didn't have access to the democracy because of their gender. And a truly healthy functional democracy, you know, is one that, you know, Demos, it represents the people. And so the health of the democracy is contingent on engagement and participation from the full citizenry. And so to me, diversity, equity, and inclusion is foundational to a healthy and thriving democracy. It is not a sort of nice to have. It's a must have because otherwise you have, you know, some sort of autocracy or a smaller group making decisions for the broader populace. And I think that that threatens, A, I think that when you have the full range of voices and perspectives, you're going to come to better decisions and outcomes. And there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, it's easier to make decisions with homogeneous groups. Yet when you're wrestling with complex issues, and God knows the world is facing complex issues now, be it climate change, be it, you know, mass migration issues, be it gun violence, that you're going to come up with more 
sophisticated, more nuanced, and more sustainable decisions if you engage a breadth of voices. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And do you feel the importance of democracy is because of your position? Obviously, you're in Georgetown, DC, you're in the capital. Do you feel that there's a responsibility to be more geared that way, that you should be the flag bearers of being able to deal with and talk about democracy in such a way because of your position? Or does it really not matter? There was nothing that was driven because of that? I think it's both and. I think that here in the nation's capital, our kids are inevitably proximate to conversations that are happening that echo nationally and even globally. You know, when on January 6th, our democracy was threatened um, and our election outcomes were challenged, our kids felt the proximity to capital uprising that was happening down the road. And so I think that they do feel a close proximate connection to the democracy. And yet I think awareness of democracy as something that is both fragile and precious, whether you live in California or Montana or Georgia, you know, everybody needs that level of investment. I will tell you that there are things that we do at Georgetown Day School that are very intentionally preparing kids for the democracy. We have a policy institute that our high school students participate in every summer that they can choose from any number of tracks. And they meet people who are impacted by the issues. They learn about the sort of policy matter from both sides. And ultimately, they bring to life some sort of project or initiative. I'll give you an example. When probably eight or nine years ago, a group of students were noticing that in higher education, there were a lot of conversations happening around issues of sexual assault and consent in higher ed, but that there wasn't a lot of conversation happening in K-12 schools. And that didn't mean that sexual assault wasn't happening in K-12 schools. It just wasn't being talked about as much. And so... They studied these issues. They talked to people in universities. They talked to psychologists. They talked to rape crisis centers. At the end of this process, they decided they would host a summit at Georgetown Day School for um, young people and educators to learn more about this issue. So that probably started seven or eight years ago. They've been doing it every year since. And this year, you know, nearly 500 students and educators from around the country come to our schools for a multi-day session. There's a track for parents. There's a track for educators. There's a track for students. It's entirely run and planned by our high school students. And to me, that is democracy in action, right? It is, we've identified an issue. We have decided that we have something to say around this issue, and we are going to bring people together. We're going to educate them, and we're going to send them back to their institutions a little better informed and a little more empowered to be able to um, make an impact in their institutions. When people say democracy, they sometimes think of our people voting. And certainly voting is important. There are so many other ways to participate in a democracy. It's bringing people together. It's exposing them to new ideas. It is planning education. And to me, giving our kids the opportunity to sort of express agency through participating in the democracy is essential. I mean, that's high school kids. I can tell you a story about 
and this was a few years ago, but on our playground, because of a construction project, the sandbox got moved. The kindergartners decided that they didn't like the new location of the sandbox because it didn't get as much sun as before. They protested and they made signs and they marched around the playground and they said, we want the sandbox to be moved. And so this idea that, you know, five-year-olds can participate in democracy and use their voices. And again, that's part of what we are very intentional in cultivating that in our kids. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned uh, student agency, and I know that that's a very important area of how you want to frame the school. So there's an educational kind of structure that allows the students to go off and lead the education for themselves and to solve problems. How did you come about with this? And, you know, is it difficult to put in some kind of framework where students can, you know, set up a summit? That's not easy to do, to go off and do that. But it feels like it's an innate part of what you're building into what you're doing at Georgetown that your students can benefit from. How do you go about embedding student agency? We go about embedding student agency a few different ways. One is from the youngest age, we let our kids know that their voices and their opinions matter. And we give them autonomy. I've been at Georgetown Day School for 13 years. I had been at the school for a few weeks. I was walking down the hallway and saw a six-year-old in the hall. And I asked her where she was going. And she said, I'm going to art. And she was by herself. And I said, do you need any help? And she looked at me and she said, you know, I know where the art room is. This idea that these kids can do for themselves, right? Starting from very young ages. I have had nine-year-olds come to me after the Parkland shooting and say, we think this is terrible and we want to organize a march and we want to have a bake sale and we want to. And kids have these ideas all the time. The question is, do we take them seriously? Do we listen to them? And do we say, great idea. How can we help? How can we be of support? As opposed to, no, 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 go back to class, right? We understand these ideas that are not necessarily what we had planned for that day are actually vital to their education because it suggests that they are actually the authors of what should be happening in school rather than the passive receptacles just waiting for us to pour our wisdom into them. We're creating a context, we're creating an environment, and within that environment, they are stepping in and they are saying, here's what we think needs to be happening right now. Last week in our middle school on Tuesday and our high school on Wednesday, we had what we call social justice teaching days. And um, we have a keynote speaker and then kids can sign up for one of 40 or 50 different workshops. The workshops, some are led by parents, some are led by faculty, but most are led by students. And so students will teach about reproductive justice or students will teach about anti-Semitism or students will talk about environmental justice and water conditions in a neighborhood where they live. But kids are given the opportunity to say, here's something I care deeply about, given a platform to be able to talk about it with my peers. So this idea that not only are we going to listen, but we're actually going to amplify the things that you're struggling with, the things that you're thinking about to give you an opportunity to feel heard, to convince others, and to maybe broaden activism around an issue that's important to you. And it's great because the kids now are very adaptive, they're creative, and you're allowing them this freedom almost to come up with an idea. However bad an adult may think it is, we're allowing, that's the old way. It doesn't fit with what we're learning right now. Just concentrate on what you're learning, sit in class, finish your exams, and and you'll be fine. This whole shift in going, 
you've got a voice, you've got an idea. This is great. How do we nurture that idea? And that's the role of an adult. We have experience and wisdom to be able to help guide them. And it may be that, you know, their big ideas are very ambitious and we've got to give them some realistic timetables. Because the other thing with this idea where you've got student agency to be able to come up with ideas and you give them a platform to support them, it must be quite disruptive too. Because imagine all of your students come to you one day, Russell, go, sir, got a great idea. And you've got to sit there like you're on Shark's Tank going, okay, how are we going to fit all this in? How do you balance that? And that's a great question. And interestingly, you know, you said, sir, Simon, and at Georgetown Day School, students call teachers by their first names. And there's an interesting historical antecedent to that, which is that in 1940s in the South, in Washington, D.C., was largely of the South in that time period. If you were a white child speaking to a Black adult, you would call them by their first name. But if you were a Black adult speaking to a white child, you would call them Mr. or Mrs., right? So sort of hierarchy was built into the language based on race. And so the founders who said, we are going to have the first integrated school in the district and we want a school where everybody feels and experiences an equal sense of belonging, decided they would erase that linguistic hierarchy by having everybody use first names. The way that that manifests now is kids feel like they are taken seriously by the adults in the community. And of course, the teachers are still the teachers. It's not anarchy right? The teachers still get to say, you have an assignment that's due, um, you still need to come to class. And yet this idea that this first name also reinforces a, we take your idea seriously. One way, you know, you talked about how do we deal with all of the incoming? We have a sort of brilliant and sophisticated student newspaper in our high school. As a school leader, that cuts both ways, right? Because on the one hand, the number of kids who write for or editors of this student newspaper and who 10 years later are, you know, writing for the New York Times or the Washington Post or editors of, you know, The Atlantic is quite remarkable. I see journalism as an essential part of democracy, right? The flip side of that is when you're in high school, you're not necessarily covering the White House, right? You're covering me as head of school. And so we have this critical eye of student journalists trained on the institution and showing up and asking hard questions, et cetera. So it's a beautiful thing that these kids are feeling the sense of ownership and agency. They're going to say to us, they are not going to passively sit by and say, we think you've got it. They're going to ask us hard questions and we have to create spaces, whether it is here are the times when I'm available to talk to student journalists, whether it's these are our social justice teach-in days where you're going to be able to offer a workshop or periodically, whether it's the students saying, here is an issue which we think needs to be talked about and you actually haven't created space. How can we do that? And then we think of ourselves as working in partnership with them to say, okay, well, next week is not great because we have exams, but let's think together about how do we solve these sorts of things and how do we engage students as partners in thinking through a path for their advocacy. They may feel like we aren't doing enough. We may feel like we're constantly responding. And I think that's actually a healthy tension. Their agency and their push versus our responsibility. What we can't do is say to our you know, parents, your kids are beautiful activists, but they can't multiply, right? Or they can't write a paragraph. So we have to make sure we're accomplishing both on this journey of 
ensuring that they're learning core educational skills and learning agency and learning voice. And the last thing I will say is one of the reasons I know that we're successful, you know, when I got to college as an 18-year-old, I was sort of wide-eyed and probably took a couple of years before I felt like I might be able to raise my hand, talk to a professor, start a new organization. Our kids are usually doing that within days, right? They have this sense of my voice matters. They get to college, they join organizations, they're meeting with professors, they're starting new organizations because they have so much practice at doing that in school. It's amazing. And I was exactly the same. I was sat in the middle of the class, just wasn't quite there because there's always the ones. And I suppose there is this other side to allowing this agency where all the students can go off, have ideas and do it. There will always be a small pocket of kids who are so shy. They need a very different platform where you go, hey, how do you work with those kids? Because they're the ones that possibly have some of the better ideas, but they're not confident enough. And that's part of talk about building resilience. And this whole process just strikes me as is great for resilience because I'm going to have an idea. I've got to risk it not being a really good idea. I may see it through or may not see it through, but I'll see it through to whether it's going to fail or whether it's going to succeed. How do you get the ones who are quieter of voice to kind of step up? There is research in the resilience field that talks about islands of competence. And the idea of an island of competence is where is the space in your world where you feel capable? And it could be athletics, it could be piano, it could be simply, you know, having a, a game that you're brilliant at playing, it could be friend groups. Where is the place where you feel like this is something I know how to do? I think that our teachers knowing their kids, knowing where it is that their students feel capable and competent and tapping into that will help, okay, I feel seen and known, and now you, you value what it is that I uniquely bring, that's going to help me step into places where I feel less comfortable. If the way in which I'm competent is invisible to you, it is, I think, much easier for me to sort of fade into the background and not share my voice. Um, and I think that creating a context where, A, teachers are recognizing what are the unique strengths that each student brings, and B, appreciating that so that their peers can appreciate that as well. Appreciate that we are not looking for an environment in which everybody does the same thing, that your unique skills attribute life story is actually a source of strength for us. And again, to me, that's where an environment that champions diversity as a source of strength. We are a more interesting classroom because you, with your unique perspective and life story is part of it. Our conversations are going to be richer. They're going to be more engaging. It is a teacher ear that listens for the story that is different and not merely makes space for it, but actually celebrates it and says, that is fabulous. Nobody else shared that perspective or nobody else has that story. How can we pull it into the conversation? Wellbeing and happiness in schools has been brought into sharp focus the last few years. I know you talk about joy, and I do too. I think joy is a soulful definition. I think people talk about wellness and happiness. Happiness is a hard thing, I think, to measure because it's quite temporary. And you know, may maybe it isn't as quite as deep as you need it. Can we just talk about joy and you know, about is there a way to measure joy? And you know, how do we kind of build a sense of belonging that aligns itself to joy? I think a couple of things. One is if 
school is about intrinsic motivation. If it is about, are you getting the grades? Are you going to the right college? Are you building the resume? That can over time become a sort of soul-sucking enterprise and it can undermine joy. And I think the trick is this morning I walked into a kindergarten classroom and they were doing a very basic grammar exercise. And the kids were delighted and they're squirming in their seats and they're raising their hands and they're having the best time learning about what order words should go in a sentence, right? To think about five-year-olds delighting in what they're learning, like five-year-olds delight in what they're learning. They do. The challenge is how do we have 15-year-olds delight in what they're learning, right? How do we sustain that intellectual curiosity over time? How do we create space for them to be delighted by ideas? And I think that you do that through ritual. Every Monday morning, our whole high school comes together. We have something called a forum. It's like a big amphitheater and they come together. There are announcements where kids get to celebrate what each other's are doing. We have, you know, our student body president doing knock-knock jokes. We have acapella performances. We have, it is just this sort of festive spirited environment where grade level competitions, a few things are happening. One is it's fun because you get to see all of this. You don't know what's going to happen. You get to see this sort of spontaneous activity. There is something about being in this space and being surrounded by peers where you feel like you belong to something that's bigger than you. And I see that as incredibly protective for young people. I think that, so in terms of how do you measure that, I'd say a couple of things. One is a lot of it is qualitative, right? What does it sound like in the stairwells? What does it sound like in the hallways? Are kids sticking around? Our joke is, you know, we are called Georgetown Day School, but our joke is we call ourselves Georgetown Day and Night School. And that's because the kids don't leave. They are often, you know, the building opens up at six and kids are getting there at seven in the morning and we're kicking them out of the building at eight at night. And it is because they feel a sense of this is their community. It's their space. They're going to clubs, they're going to activities, or they're just hanging out and working alongside their friends. And so are you creating comfortable spaces where they can get together in small groups? Are you creating big spaces where they can share their skills and their talents or see the talents of others? And so for us, one of the measures of are we creating a sense of belonging is are kids sticking around and being there or is it it's 315 and everybody, the building is empty. So are kids choosing to belong in this community. And that's something that I think we do really well. And it is partly by providing such a rich ecosystem of activities. Every fall, we have a club fair. There are 500 students in our high school. There are probably 100 clubs. And they are everything from things you might expect, like debate or model United Nations, to the Pasta Appreciation Club or the Beyonce Club or whatever. And it is less about we take pasta seriously than it is about this is something fun and whimsical that I can choose to be part of and share in with peers. And maybe I'll go during my break and there will be free food and maybe I'll see a few friends and then I'll go on to my next thing. So creating just this incredibly rich ecosystem of places and gatherings and groups to which you belong. You belong to your advisory. You belong to your different classes that you're part of. You belong to your grade. What are all of the different micro communities within the macro community where kids can feel anchored, seen, known, understood, and that they're part of something?
just feel the passion coming through and you know you've been there for 13 years and it just feels like a really fantastic place i'm going to leave you with one question and if you were to look into a crystal ball what would the future of education look like in 2050 you know you know what works right now but you know let's fast forward some years and let's see what it might be i talked earlier about artificial intelligence. And I was sitting at the dining room table with my 15-year-old daughter last night who was doing her work. And she said, she is using chat GPT not to write her papers. She said, this is amazing, dad. If I'm struggling with a concept like stoichiometry or you know Marxism, I can write into chat GPT, explain Marxism to me as though you would to a 12-year-old. All of a sudden, I'm getting a simplified version of something that can help me understand it. There is a way, or I'm studying for a test, create a set of multiple choice questions for me around this topic. Already, and we are at such an early stage of this, AI is allowing for a differentiated version of instruction that kids and faculty are going to be able to use. So I actually think in that world, what happens in physical space between human beings becomes more important, right? Because what can technology not do for us? It cannot teach us how to collaborate. It cannot teach us how to navigate um, conflict. It cannot teach us to always know what's true and to really listen for what's true. I will double down on in-person education. More things are going to happen online. We're going to be able to do more Zooming like this. And yet there is something that happens when young people are in physical space together and they are bumping up against each other and they are coming up with new ideas and solutions that our kids are going to be faced with a set of challenges that are so incredibly complex and they're going to require collaborative problem solving. They're going to require kids, adults coming together and navigating through hard things with different perspectives and finding new pathways. And so I think in-person school with all sorts of ancillary support provided by technology, sure, but in-person school, being together, working through hard problems 50 years from now will absolutely be part of what we're doing. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.